Section 5 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gerlinga. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell. Section 5, 1769, Continued. On Thursday, October 19th, I passed the evening with him at his house. He advised me to complete a dictionary of words peculiar to Scotland. Ray has made a collection of North Country words. By collecting those of your country, you will do a useful thing towards the history of the language. He bade me also go on with collections which I was making upon the antiquities of Scotland. Make a large book, a folio. Boswell. But of what use will it be, sir? Johnson. Never mind the use. Do it. I complained that he had not mentioned Garrick in his preface to Shakespeare, and asked him if he did not admire him. Johnson. Yes, as a poor player who frets and struts his hour upon the stage, as a shadow. Boswell. But has he not brought Shakespeare into notice? Johnson. Sir, to allow that would be to lampoon the age. Many of Shakespeare's plays are the worse for being acted. Macbeth, for instance. Boswell. What, sir, is nothing gained by decoration and action? Indeed, I do wish that you had mentioned Garrick. Johnson. My dear sir, had I mentioned him, I must have mentioned many more. Mrs. Pritchard, Mrs. Sibber, nay, and Mr. Sibber too. He, too, altered Shakespeare. Boswell, you have read his apology, sir? Johnson, yes, it is very entertaining. But as for Sibber himself, taking from his conversation all that he ought not to have said, he was a poor creature. I remember when he brought me one of his odes to have my opinion of it. I could not bear such nonsense. I would not let him read it to the inn, so little respect I had for that great man laughing. Yet I remember Richardson wondering that I could treat him with familiarity. I mentioned to him that I had seen the execution of several convicts at Tyburn two days before, and that none of them seemed to be under any concern. Johnson. Most of them, sir, have never thought at all. Boswell. But is not the fear of death natural to man? Johnson. So much, sir, that the whole of life is but keeping away the thoughts of it. He then, in a low and earnest tone, talked of his meditating upon the awful hour of his own dissolution, and in what manner he should conduct himself upon that occasion. I know not, said he, whether I should wish to have a friend by me, or have it all between God and myself. Talking of our feeling for the distresses of others. Johnson. Why, sir, there is much noise made about it, but it is greatly exaggerated. No, sir, we have a certain degree of feeling to prompt us to do good. More than that, providence does not intend. It would be misery to no purpose. Boswell. But suppose now, sir, that one of your intimate friends were apprehended for an offense for which he might be hanged. Johnson. I should do what I could to bail him, and give him any other assistance, but if he were once fairly hanged, I should not suffer. Boswell. Would you eat your dinner that day, sir? Johnson. Yes, sir, and eat it as if he were eating it with me. 
Why, there's Baretti, who is to be tried for his life tomorrow. Friends have risen up for him on every side. Yet, if he should be hanged, none of them will eat a slice of plum pudding the less. Sir, that sympathetic feeling goes a very little way in depressing the mind. I told him that I had dined lately at Foote's, who showed me a letter which he had received from Tom Davies, telling him that he had not been able to sleep from the concern which he felt on account of this sad affair of Baretti, begging of him to try if he could to suggest anything that might be of service, and at the same time recommending to him an industrious young man who kept a pickle shop. Johnson. Aye, sir, here you have a specimen of human sympathy, a friend hanged and a cucumber pickled. We know not whether Baretti or the pickle man has kept Davies from sleep, nor does he know himself. And as to his not sleeping, sir, Tom Davies is a very great man. Tom has been upon the stage and knows how to do those things. I have not been upon the stage and cannot do those things. Boswell. I have often blamed myself, sir, for not feeling for others as sensibly as many say they do. Johnson. Sir, don't be duped by them any more. You will find these very feeling people are not very ready to do you good. They pay you by feeling. Boswell. Foote has a great deal of humor. Johnson. Yes, sir. Boswell. He has a singular talent of exhibiting character. Sir, it is not a talent, it is a vice. It is what others abstain from. It is not comedy which exhibits the character of a species as that of a miser gathered from many misers. It is farce which exhibits individuals. Boswell. Did not he think of exhibiting you, sir? Johnson. Sir, fear restrained him. He knew I would have broken his bones. I would have saved him the trouble of cutting off a leg. I would not have left him a leg to cut off. Boswell. Pray, sir, is not Foote an infidel? Johnson. I do not know, sir, that the fellow is an infidel. But if he be an infidel, he is an infidel as a dog is an infidel. That is to say, he has never thought upon the subject. Boswell. I suppose, sir, he has thought superficially, and seized the first notions which occurred to his mind. Johnson. Why then, sir, still he is like a dog, that snatches the piece next him. Did you never observe that dogs have not the power of comparing? A dog will take a small bit of meat as readily as a large, when both are before him. Buchanan, he observed, has many fewer centos than any modern Latin poet. He not only had great knowledge of the Latin language, but was a great poetical genius. Both the Scaligers praise him. He again talked of the passage in Congreve with high commendation, and said, Shakespeare never has six lines together without a fault. Perhaps you may find seven, but this does not refute my general assertion. If I come to an orchard and say there's no fruit there, and then comes a pouring man who finds two apples and three pears and tells me, Sir, you are mistaken, I have found both apples and pears, I should laugh at him. What would that be to the purpose? Boswell. What do you think of Dr. Young's night thoughts, sir? Johnson. Why, sir, there are very fine things in them. Boswell. Is there not less religion in the nation now, sir, than there was formerly? Johnson. I don't know, sir, that there is. Boswell. For instance, there used to be a chaplain in every great family, which we do not find now. Johnson. Neither do you find any of the state servants which great families used formerly to have. There is a change in modes in the whole department of life.
Next day, October 20th, he appeared for the only time I suppose in his life as a witness in a court of justice, being called to give evidence to the character of Mr. Beretti, who, having stabbed a man in the street, was arraigned at the Old Bailey for murder. Never did such a constellation of genius enlighten the awful Sessions House, emphatically called Justice Hall. Mr. Burke, Mr. Garrick, Mr. Beauclerk, and Dr. Johnson, and undoubtedly their favorable testimony had great weight with the court and jury. Johnson gave his evidence in a slow, deliberate, and distinct manner, which was uncommonly impressive. It is well known that Mr. Beretti was acquitted. On the 26th of October, we dined together at the Mitre Tavern. I found fault with Foote for indulging his talent of ridicule at the expense of his visitors, which I colloquially termed making fools of his company. Johnson. Why, sir, when you go to see Foote, you do not go to see a saint. You go to see a man who will be entertained at your house and then bring you on a public stage, who will entertain you at his house for the very purpose of bringing you on a public stage. Sir, he does not make fools of his company. They whom he exposes are fools already. He only brings them into action. Talking of trade, he observed, it is a mistaken notion that a vast deal of money is brought into a nation by trade. It is not so. Commodities come from commodities, but trade produces no capital accession of wealth. However, though there should be little profit in money, there is a considerable profit in pleasure, as it gives to one nation the productions of another, as we have wines and fruits, and many foreign articles brought to us. Boswell. Yes, sir, and there is a profit in pleasure by its furnishing occupation to such numbers of mankind. Johnson. Why, sir, you cannot call that pleasure to which all are averse, and which none begin but with the hope of leaving off of. A thing which men dislike before they have tried it, and when they have tried it. Boswell. But, sir, the mind must be employed, and we grow weary when idle. Johnson. That is, sir, because others being busy, we want company. But if we were all idle, there would be no growing weary. We should all entertain one another. There is indeed this in trade. It gives men an opportunity of improving their situation. If there were no trade, many who are poor would always remain poor. But no man loves labor for itself. Boswell. Yes, sir, I know a person who does. He is a very laborious judge, and he loves the labor. Johnson. Sir, that is because he loves respect and distinction. Could he have them without labor, he would like it less. Boswell. He tells me he likes it for itself. Why, sir, he fancies so, because he is not accustomed to abstract. We went home to his house to tea. Mrs. Williams made it with sufficient dexterity, notwithstanding her blindness, though her manner of satisfying herself that the cups were full enough appeared to me a little awkward, for I fancied she put a finger down a certain way till she felt the tea touch. In my first elation at being allowed the privilege of attending Dr. Johnson at his late visits to this lady, which was like being a secorabilis concilius, I willingly drank cup after cup as if it had been the Heliconian spring. But as the charm of novelty went off, I grew more fastidious, and besides I discovered that she was of a peevish temper. There was a pretty large circle this evening. Dr. Johnson was in a very good humor, lively, and ready to talk upon all subjects. Mr. Ferguson, the self-taught philosopher, 
told him of a new invented machine which went without horses, a man who said in it turned a handle which worked a spring that drove it forward. Then, sir, said Johnson, what is gained is the man has his choice whether he will move himself alone or himself in the machine too. Domenicetti being mentioned, he would not allow him any merit. There is nothing in all this boasted system. No, sir, medicated baths can be no better than warm water. Their only effect can be that of tepid moisture. One of the company took the other side, maintaining that medicines of various sorts, and some too of most powerful effect, are introduced into the human frame by the medium of the pores, and, therefore, when warm water is impregnated with salutiferous substances, it may produce great effects as a bath. This appeared to me very satisfactory. Johnson did not answer it, but, talking for victory and determined to be master of the field, he had recourse to the device which Goldsmith imputed to him in the witty words of one of Sivers' comedies. There is no arguing with Johnson, for when his pistol misses fire, he knocks you down with the butt-end of it. He turned to the gentleman. Well, sir, you go to Domenicetti and get thyself fumigated, but be sure that the steam be directed to thy head, for that is the peccant part. This produced a triumphant roar of laughter from the motley assembly of philosophers, printers, and dependents, male and female. I know not how so whimsical a thought came into my mind, but I asked, If, sir, you were shut up in a castle, and a newborn child with you, what would you do? Johnson, why, sir, I should not much like my company. Boswell, but would you take the trouble of rearing it? He seemed, as well may be supposed, unwilling to pursue the subject. But upon my persevering in my question, replied, Why, yes, sir, I would. But I must have all conveniences. If I had no garden, I would make a shed on the roof and take it there for fresh air. I should feed it, and wash it much, and with warm water to please it, not with cold water to give it pain. Boswell, but, sir, does not heat relax? Johnson, Sir, you are not to imagine the water is to be very hot. I would not coddle the child. No, sir, the hardy method of treating children does no good. I'll take you five children from London who shall cuff five Highland children. Sir, a man bred in London will carry a burthen, or run, or wrestle, as well as a man brought up in the hardiest manner in the country. Boswell. Good living, I suppose, makes the Londoners strong. Johnson. Why, sir, I don't know that it does. Our chairmen from Ireland, who are as strong as any, have been brought up upon potatoes. Quantity makes up for quality. Boswell. Would you teach this child that I have furnished you with anything? Johnson. No, I should not be apt to teach it. Boswell. Would not you have a pleasure in teaching it? Johnson. No, sir, I should not have a pleasure in teaching it. Boswell. Have you not a pleasure in teaching men? There I have you. You have the same pleasure in teaching men that I should have in teaching children. Johnson. Why, something about that. Boswell. Do you think, sir, that what is called natural affection is born with us? Johnson. Why, sir, I think there is an instinctive natural affection in parents toward their children. Russia being mentioned is likely to become a great empire by the rapid increase in population. Johnson. Why, sir, I see no prospect of their propagating more. They can have no more children than they can get. 
I know of no way to make them breed more than they do. It is not from reason and prudence the people marry, but from inclination. A man is poor. He thinks, I cannot be worse, and so I'll e'en take Peggy. Boswell. But have not nations been more populous at one period than another? Johnson. Yes, sir, but that has been owing to the people being less thinned at one period than another, whether by immigrations, war, or pestilence, not by their being more or less prolific. Births at all time bear the same proportion to the same number of people. Boswell. But to consider the state of our own country, does not throwing a number of farms into one hand hurt population? Johnson. Why, no, sir. The same quantity of food is being produced, will be consumed by the same number of mouths, though the people may be disposed of in different ways. We see, if corn be dear, and butchers meet cheap, the farmers all apply themselves to the raising of corn, till it becomes plentiful and cheap, and then butcher's meat becomes dear, so that inequality is always preserved. No, sir, let fanciful men do as they will, depend upon it. It is difficult to disturb the system of life. Boswell. But, sir, is it not a very bad thing for landlords to oppress their tenants by raising their rents? Johnson. Very bad. But, sir, it never can have any general influence. It may distress some individuals. For consider this. Landlords cannot do without tenants. Now tenants will not give more for land than land is worth. If they can make more of their money by keeping a shop or any other way, they'll do it. And so oblige landlords to let land come back to a reasonable rent, in order that they may get tenants. Land in England is an article of commerce. A tenant who pays his landlord his rent thinks himself no more obliged to him than you think yourself obliged to a man in whose shop you buy a piece of goods. He knows the landlord does not let him have his land for less than he can get from others, in the same manner as the shopkeeper sells his goods. No shopkeeper sells a yard of ribbon for sixpence when sevenpence is the current price. Boswell. But, sir, is it not better that tenants should be dependent on landlords? Johnson. Why, sir, as there are many more tenants than landlords, perhaps, strictly speaking, we should wish not. But if you please, you may let your lands cheap, and so get the value, part in money and part in homage. I should agree with you in that. Boswell. So, sir, you laugh at schemes of political improvement. Johnson. Why, sir, most schemes of political improvement are very laughable things. He observed, Providence has wisely ordered that the more numerous men are, the more difficult it is for them to agree in anything, and so they are governed. There is no doubt that if the poor should reason, we'll be poor no longer, we'll make the rich men take their turn, they could easily do it, were it not that they can't agree. So the common soldiers, though much more numerous than their officers, are governed by them for the same reason. He said, Mankind have a strong attachment to the habitations to which they have been accustomed. You see the inhabitants of Norway do not with one consent quit it, and go to some part of America where there is a mild climate, and where they might have the same produce from land with the tenth part of the labor. No, sir, their affection for their old dwellings and the terror of a general change keep them at home. Thus we see many of the finest spots of the world thinly inhabited, and many rugged spots well inhabited. The London Chronicle, which was the only newspaper he constantly took in, being brought, the office of reading it aloud was assigned to me. I was diverted by his impatience. He made me pass over so many parts of it that my task was very easy. He would not suffer one of the petitions to the king about the Middlesex election to be read.
I had hired a bohemian as my servant while I remained in London, and being much pleased with him, I asked Dr. Johnson whether his being a Roman Catholic should prevent my taking him to Scotland. Johnson, why, no, sir, if he has no objection, you can have none. Boswell, so, sir, you are no great enemy to the Roman Catholic religion? Johnson, no more, sir, than to the Presbyterian religion. Boswell, you are joking. Johnson, no, sir, I really think so. Nay, sir, of the two I prefer the Popish. Boswell, how so, sir? Johnson, why, sir, the Presbyterians have no church, no apostolical ordination. Boswell, and do you think that absolutely essential, sir? Johnson, why, sir, as it was an apostolical institution, I think it is dangerous to be without it. And, sir, the Presbyterians have no public worship. They have no form of prayer in which they know how to join. They go to hear a man pray, and are to judge whether they will join with him. Boswell, but, sir, their doctrine is the same with that of the Church of England. Their confession of faith and the 39 articles contain the same points, even the doctrine of predestination. Johnson, why, yes, sir, predestination was a part of the clamor of the times, so it is mentioned in our articles, with as little positiveness as could be. Boswell, is it necessary, to, sir, to believe all the 39 articles? Johnson, why, sir, that is a question which has been much agitated. Some have thought it necessary that they all should be believed. Others have considered them to be only articles of peace. That is to say, you are not to preach against them. Boswell, it appears to me, sir, that predestination, or what is equivalent to it, cannot be avoided if we hold a universal prescience in the deity. Johnson, why, sir, does not God every day see things going on without preventing them? Boswell, true, sir, but if a thing be certainly foreseen, it must be fixed, and cannot happen otherwise. And if we apply this consideration to the human mind, there is no free will, nor do I see how prayer can be any avail. He mentioned Dr. Clark and Bishop Branhall on Liberty and Necessity, and bid me read South's Sermons on Prayer, but avoided the question which has excruciated philosophers and divines beyond any other. I did not press it further when I perceived that he was displeased, and shrunk from any abridgment of an attribute usually ascribed to the divinity, however irreconcilable in its full extent with the grand system of moral government. His supposed orthodoxy here cramped the vigorous powers of his understanding. He was confined by a chain which early imagination and long habit made him think massy and strong, but which, had he ventured to try, he could at once have snapped asunder. I proceeded. What do you think, sir, of purgatory, as believed by the Roman Catholics? Johnson. Why, sir, it is a very harmless doctrine. They are of opinion that the generality of mankind are neither so obstinately wicked as to deserve everlasting punishment, nor so good as to merit being admitted into the society of blessed spirits, and therefore that God is graciously pleased to allow of a middle state where they may be purified by certain degrees of suffering. You see, sir, there is nothing unreasonable in this. Boswell. But then, sir, there are masses for the dead. Johnson. Why, sir? If it be once established that there are souls in purgatory, it is as proper to pray for them as for our brethren of mankind who are yet in this life. Boswell, the idolatry of the Mass? Johnson, sir, there is no idolatry in the Mass. They believe God to be there, and they adore him. Boswell, 
The worship of the saints? Johnson. Sir, they do not worship saints. They invoke them. They only ask their prayers. I am talking all this time of the doctrines of the Church of Rome. I grant you that in practice, purgatory is made a lucrative imposition, and that the people do become idolatrous as they recommend themselves to the tutelary protection of particular saints. I think their giving the sacrament only in one kind is criminal, because it is contrary to the expressed institution of Christ, and I wonder how the Council of Trent admitted it. Boswell. Confession? Johnson. Why, I don't know, but that that is a good thing. The scripture says, confess your faults to one another, and the priests confess as well as the laity. Then it must be considered that their absolution is only upon repentance, and often upon penance also. You think your sins may be forgiven without penance, upon repentance alone. I thus ventured to mention all of the common objections against the Roman Catholic Church, that I may hear so great a man upon them. What he said here is accurately recorded, but it is not improbable that if one had taken the other side, he might have reasoned differently. I must, however, mention that he had a respect for the old religion, as the mild Melanchthon called that of the Roman Catholic Church, even while he was exerting himself for its reformation in some particulars. Sir William Scott informs me that he heard Johnson say, A man who is converted from Protestantism to popery may be sincere. He parts with nothing. He is only superadding to what he already had. But a convert from popery to Protestantism gives up so much of what he has held as sacred as anything that he retains. There is so much laceration of mind in such a conversion that it can hardly be sincere and lasting. The truth of this reflection may be confirmed by many and imminent instances, some of which will occur to most of my readers. When we were alone, I introduced the subject of death, and endeavored to maintain that the fear of it might be got over. I told him that David Hume said to me, he was no more uneasy to think that he should not be after this life than that he had not been before he began to exist. Johnson. Sir, if he really thinks so, his perceptions are disturbed. He is mad. If he does not think so, he lies. He may tell you, he holds his finger in the flame of a candle without feeling pain. Would you believe him? When he dies, he at least gives up all he has. Boswell. Foot, sir, told me that when he was very ill, he was not afraid to die. Johnson. It is not true, sir. Hold a pistol to Foot's breast, or to Hume's breast, and threaten to kill them, and you will see how they behave. Boswell. But may not we fortify our minds for the approach of death? Here I am sensible I was in the wrong, to bring before he view what he ever looked upon with horror. For although, when in a celestial frame, in his vanity of human wishes, he had supposed death to be kind nature's signal for retreat, from this state of being to a happier seat, his thoughts upon this awful change were in general full of dismal apprehensions. His mind resembled the vast amphitheater, the Colosseum at Rome. In the center stood his judgment, which, like a mighty gladiator, combated those apprehensions that, like the wild beasts of the arena, were all around in cells, ready to be led out upon him. After a conflict, he drives them back into their dens, but not killing him, they were still assailing him. To my question, whether we might fortify our minds for the approach of death, he answered in a passion, No, sir, let it alone. It matters not how a man dies, but how he lives. 
The act of dying is not of importance. It lasts so short a time. He added, with an earnest look, A man knows it must be so, and submits. It will do him no good to whine. I attempted to continue the conversation. He was so provoked that he said, Give us no more of this, and was thrown into such a state of agitation that he expressed himself in a way that alarmed and distressed me, showed an impatience that I should leave him, and when I was going away, called to me sternly, Don't let us meet tomorrow. I went home exceedingly uneasy. All the harsh observations which I had ever heard made upon his character crowded into my mind, and I seemed to myself like the man who had put his head into the lion's mouth a great many times with perfect safety, but at last had it bit off. Next morning I sent him a note, stating that I might have been in the wrong, but it was not intentionally. He was therefore, I could not help thinking, too severe upon me, that, notwithstanding our agreement not to meet that day, I would call on him in my way to the city and stay five minutes by my watch. You are, said I, in my mind, since last night, surrounded with cloud and storm. Let me have a glimpse of sunshine, and I shall go about my affairs in serenity and cheerfulness. Upon entering his study, I was glad that he was not alone, which would have made our meeting more awkward. There were with him Mr. Stevens and Mr. Tears, both of whom I now saw for the first time. My note had, on his own reflection, softened him, for he received me very complacently, so that I unexpectedly found myself at ease and joined in the conversation. He said the critics had done too much honor to Sir Richard Blackmore by writing so much against him, that in his creation he had been helped by various wits, aligned by Phillips and aligned by Tickle, so that by their aid, and those of others, the poem had been made out. I defended Blackmore's supposed lines, which have been ridiculed as absolute nonsense. A painted vest Prince Voltiger had on, which from a naked pict his grandsire won. I maintained it to be a poetical conceit. A pict being painted, if he is slain in battle, and a vest is made out of his skin, it is a painted vest won from him, though he was naked. Johnson spoke unfavorably of a pretty voluminous author saying he used to write anonymous books and then other books commending those books in which there was something of rascality i whispered him well sir you are now in good humor johnson yes sir i was going to leave him and had got as far as the staircase he stopped me and smiling said get you gone in a curious mode of inviting me to stay which i accordingly did for some time longer this little incidental quarrel and reconciliation, which perhaps I may be thought to have detailed too minutely, must be esteemed as one of those many proofs which his friends had, that though he might be charged with bad humor at times, he always was a good-natured man. And I have heard Sir Joshua Reynolds, a nice and delicate observer of manners, particularly remark that when upon any occasion Johnson had been rough to any person in company, he took the first opportunity of reconciliation by drinking to him or addressing his discourse to him. But if he found his dignified, indirect overtures sullenly neglected, he was quite indifferent, and considered himself as having done all that he ought to do, and as the other now in the wrong. Being set out for Scotland on the 10th of November, I wrote to him at Streatham, begging that he would meet me in town on the 9th. But if this should be very inconvenient to him, I would go thither, 
His answer was as follows. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, Upon balancing the inconveniences of both parties, I find it will less incommode you to spend your night here than me to come to town. I wish to see you, and am ordered by the lady of this house to invite you hither. Whether you can come or not, I shall not have any occasion of writing to you again before your marriage, and therefore tell you now that with great sincerity I wish you happiness. I am, dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Sam Johnson, November ninth, 1769. I was detained in town till it was too late on the ninth, so I went to him early on the morning of the 10th of November. Now, said he, that you are going to marry, do not expect more from life than life will afford. You may often find yourself out of humor, and you may often think your wife not studious enough to please you, and yet you may have reason to consider yourself as upon the whole very happily married. Talking of marriage in general, he observed, our marriage service is too refined. It is calculated only for the best kind of marriages, whereas we should have a form for matches of convenience, of which there are many. He agreed with me that there was no absolute necessity for having the marriage ceremony performed by a regular clergyman, for this was not commanded in Scripture. I was volatile enough to repeat to him a little epigrammatic song of mine on matrimony, which Mr. Garrick had a few days before procured to be set to music by the very ingenious Mr. Dibden. A matrimonial thought. In the blithe days of honeymoon, with Kate's allurements smitten, I loved her late, I loved her soon, and called her dearest kitten. But now my kitten's grown a cat, and crossed like other wives. Oh, by my soul, my honest mat, I fear she has nine lives. My illustrious friend said, It is very well, sir but you should not swear. Upon which I altered, oh, by my soul, to alas, alas. He was so good as to accompany me to London, and see me into the post-chaise which was to carry me on my road to Scotland. And sure I am that, however inconsiderable many of the particulars recorded at this time may appear to some, they will be esteemed by the best part of my readers as genuine traits of his character, Contributing together to give a full, fair, and distinct view of it. End of section 5